You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Future of Flushing. I'm Vito Calisi. With me, as always, is Jonathan Barron. And today on the show, we have with us Sam Dykstra. He's a writer for MLB Pipeline, host of the show before the show, Major League Baseball's official minor league podcast. And you could follow him on Twitter at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. Sam, dude, thanks so much for joining us. You know, we uh, we obviously use your writings and use your rankings to help us throughout the year. And uh, we're excited to have you on today, dude. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So, Sam, before we start talking about Mets prospects, and there were just 10 announced who were going to be joining the team, invited to Major League Camp, we wanted you to kind of set the table here and explain to listeners exactly how you guys come up with your lists. Obviously, there's different rankings all over. Um, but what exactly goes into the list? What are the main things you guys consider when you're building these top 30 and top 100 lists? Yeah, I mean, the rubrics for these things can get super complicated, right? As you can imagine, the the North Star that I'm always looking for is highest major league impact and likelihood of major league impact. There, We talk all the time about guys having high ceilings, but low floors. How do you kind of mix and match that? I'm always looking to rank these in terms of who do I think is going to be the most valuable major league player someday uh, and the likelihood that they'll get there. So sometimes you're looking at a guy who can throw 102 miles an hour, but doesn't know where it's going. Like feels like a guy like that should be on the list, but you know, is the walk rate continues to climb. You drop them off. Uh, it's a whole balance of stuff. The way I normally work, I sort, my organizations into tiers and then I send that out for feedback and say, you know, listen, these bite-sized tiers are just so much easier to digest and look at who should move up, who should move down within the tier. And then I look at it tier by tier. Um, so it's a lot of industry feedback. It's a lot of just experience in the game. What works, what do doesn't, what skill sets translate, what don't. And there's no golden list. I think that's one thing a lot of people should try to realize and understand there is not somewhere on some mountain like the ultimate men's top 30 that we're all trying to achieve we're all just trying to use our own formulas our own experience our own knowledge and the feedback that we get to get as close to perfect as we can but we know that that's never going to happen so you know it, you just try to bake as much information into these as you can sam what would you say is the biggest difference or if you think there are any like what are the biggest differences between say the four big rankings of uh, you got the M you got MLB pipeline, ESPN, baseball prospectus and baseball America. What should fans be looking at each list for differently? If there is any. Yeah, I, I can't really speak to everybody else's lists and, and how they do them. I mean, I'm sure they have their own processes and their own ways of, of going about it. Uh, the only thing I'll say about that, though, is I encourage people to read other lists. Like, don't treat ours like it's the only one. I, I love it. I know how much work gets put into these and I 110 percent endorse what we put out. But if you're looking to be a fan who's showing up to a minor league park, like read as much as you can, like be as educated as a, a fan as you, because we're going to disagree on stuff. And it's not us disagreeing on stuff because like I have different information than a different person. These disagreements are happening in front offices across the game. So the places that we are all differ in, those are happening elsewhere. That's not just us versus BA versus ESPN versus baseball perspectives versus fan graphs. All these discussions are happening in front offices all the time, and we kind of reflect that landscape. So I, I appreciate that there are some differences. Um, you know, you're always trying to 
at least I'm reading up that stuff and just trying to see maybe what we're missing or what I have that they don't. Um, but I, I encourage people to read as much as they can about about prospects and start with us, but like expand out from uh, uh, expand out from there. Well, knowledge is power. And you talked about all the work that goes into what you guys do and the knowledge that you inform fans with. And I've got to imagine, Sam, that the summer months, especially after the amateur draft in July, then you have signing day in August, and then you've got the trade deadline where all of these big name prospects are going left and right. And it's just totally shaking up all the hard work that you've done. So can you talk a little bit about what those summer months are like? And then also what fans should consider when maybe their team acquires a player and they go to check a ranking and they they scratch their head and they say, well, it looks like we got ripped off, but, but just wait, because when these updates are made after this period, the players uh, is held in much higher regard. Yeah, that is one thing I will say we do at MLB Pipeline is that we do, after a trade, we slot in the guy at where we think he would be today. Um, so some of these trades, and I'm sure we're going to talk about him later, like Marco Vargas last year um, in the Miami Marlins system. I remember that trade for David Robertson went down. I bumped him into the top 10 for the Mets. And Jim Callis, who does our Marlins list, was like, giving me feedback on that and just saying, Hey, you should bump him up. Listen, he was going to go higher. So that's a real opportunity. I remember one of my biggest tweets last year was saying at the time, Luis on Acuna was going to be our Mets top prospect. I wanted Mets fans to know that after he was acquired from the Rangers. So like, we'll keep you updated as best we can in other means. The list is the list. And we re the reason why we update it in August is just a time issue. Like, Jim and Jonathan covered the draft a lot. I'm around covering the minor leagues, going to a bunch of different cities. We only have so much time on our hands. August is when we can really dig in and get these draft picks incorporated. Um, but we'll keep you updated one way or another on like what these acquired players have done recently, why they moved up, why they moved down, why a team sought them out in a trade. Yeah, last year when John and I started uh, Future of Flushing, it was funny because like as guys who grew up Mets fans, the trade deadline for so many other people might have been underwhelming, but for us, uh, you could imagine it was like the most thrilling week of our lives, just texting each other back and forth every single time one of these guys came into the system and then getting to talk to them um, was incredible. So do you feel like as a fan, growing up as a fan of baseball to now reporting on the type of baseball you report on, it's so interesting to see that like switch, like that, that flip of the switch of like what you're looking at now versus back then. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of incredible. And it's incredible how the industry has changed. You know, I grew up a Red Sox fan in Massachusetts. And I remember one time, my summer job was painting apartments. And it was trade deadline day and Twitter didn't exist yet. So I'm running to my car at the end of the day, turning on sports talk radio, finding out the Sox traded for Eric Gagne. And that was the big deal. Like, that's how we learned about it. You weren't getting, oh, they're in discussions and all It's like, it happened when it happened. Uh, and now, Things are building. And also when a trade happens, my mind doesn't flip to, oh, who'd they get? What does this mean? It's automatically what prospects are involved and where do I have to slot them in? You know, I, one of my lists are the Padres lists. There is the Padres list. So when they did the, the Juan Soto blockbuster at the deadline in 2022, the rest of baseball Twitter is freaking out and being like, oh, this is such a cool trade. Like, what does this mean? I'm trying to find five Padres replacements because they just shipped out much of their best farm system. So it's interesting to see it from that way. Um, but it also is cool to become that resource that I sought out when trades used to happen. You know, when when somebody was traded for Eric Gagne or uh, some of the other big deadline deals of the past, like, who is this guy? Now I kind of know that, and I love bringing that information to people. 
That's really funny, the uh, the Eric Gagne story you tell. I have a similar story. Back in 04, I would, I would go to sleepaway camps during the summer, and they would give us three phone calls every summer, and I would always make one with my dad on July 31st. It was it was every single year. So I remember I found out that uh, the Mets had acquired Oliver Perez, which I was pumped up about at the time. I was a big fan of his um, when he was in Pittsburgh. Now, Vito mentioned all the exciting players the Mets acquired at the deadline last year. So let's talk about some of those guys because a couple days ago, we're recording this on Friday, the Mets announced that they were inviting 10 players to Major League Camp, and a lot of those guys are guys we've talked about right here on this podcast. So let's start with, I think, what, with what was the biggest trade last year, and that was the Justin Verlander deal being shipped out and the Mets acquiring both Ryan Clifford, who we'll talk about in a little bit, but also center fielder Drew Gilbert. Give us your overall thoughts on, on Gilbert. Yeah, Gilbert, um, you know, and I wrote this in our write-up on, on MLB Pipeline, but like every time you talk to somebody about how Drew Gilbert plays, it's like he's a player with his hair on fire. The guy is always going 110%. Uh, he's flying into walls and that's hurt him in the past. Like he hurt his elbow flying into a wall at one point. Um, but he's always going to go hard. And that's something he did at Tennessee. It's something he did in the Astro system. And it's something he did for that Birmingham or Binghamton team that made the Eastern league postseason last year. Uh, he's just a real catalyst at the top of the lineup. He has speed. He has a little bit more power than you would think out of somebody, his size at five foot nine, it's at least average power. Um, a comp I get a lot, and I don't normally love comps, but uh, this one kind of fits, is like a Brett Gardner type. Um, but I think his arm is better than Brett Gardner's was. So he's just a guy who, like, you want that energy in your lineup as much as you can get it there. He's been pretty consistent throughout his career. Maybe last year he dipped a little bit um, while he was dealing with an elbow, but also was DHing a bunch, and some people in the Astros system think it, the fact that he wasn't playing the field meant he was a little less engaged with the game. That's what I, why his bat dipped. Once he got to the Mets, was playing again. He can play all three outfield spots. He's a pretty quality get. Another big one, you mentioned them before, Ronald Hernandez and Marco Vargas. What were your impressions of them coming into the uh, system over here? I think Marco Vargas is a really exciting one in particular, just because what is the most difficult thing to do in baseball? It's hit. It's hit the baseball. Like the, You can be fast. You can be strong. You can do all of these things. You can throw really hard. But if you're going to be a career 185 hitter, you're never going to make the major leagues. What does Marco Vargas do really well? He controls the strike zone incredibly well. He takes his walks and he picks up hits. Looking at him last year, he had 53 walks and 38 strikeouts last year between the Mets and Marlins system. So it's already projecting, like, if he can take that approach moving forward, uh, it could be at least a plus bat. The, the question with Vargas is, is he going to hit for power? He only had two homers last year. Had a couple doubles, but not a great slugging percentage. It began with a three and, you know, he might be a little too passive in terms of when he's willing to swing. There might be some hittable pitches that he's sitting back on because he doesn't, he'd rather work the count, which is great, but Hey, if you can smack a ball for a double, like take that opportunity if it's one Oh, uh, so that, that's some things we're going to be following with him, but the fact that he has such a great hit tool already, and it might be the best in the Mets system right now, that's, that's a great start. And that's a good get again for a reliever last year. Another guy the Mets acquired, you mentioned him a little bit ago. He wasn't invited to Major League Camp with this group. That's because he's on the 40-man roster. Mets fans can still expect him to see, the, see him there and see him there plenty. And that's, of course, Luis Angel Acuna, who you mentioned right after the trade. You put him at the very top of the Mets prospect list. So what excites you so much about Luis Angel? Yeah, I mean, Luis Angel, he's now down to number three in our list, but he's still number 66 on the top 100 list. Uh, if you watch him swing, 
it looks a lot like Ronald Acuna Jr. Like it's just a smaller package. He's five foot eight. So there's some question about how the power is going to play, but it's a above average hit tool overall. I think he can have some good exit velocities. He just needs to lift a little bit better plus run tool. He's played a lot of shortstop in the Rangers and Mets systems, but I think if you move him over to second base, which listen, he's in the shadow of Francisco Lindor. Now he's probably going to have to play second base. He could be a plus defender at second. So it, the power might not even matter. He might be good at everything else that he's going to be a valuable player. And that's up the middle. So that's, you know, at a, a spot that it's not always easy to get plus hitters with good speed. Luis Angel Acuna could be that for the Mets. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now to talk more about some of those players that we mentioned are invited to camp that didn't come over in acquisitions. One player that we've talked about all season, uh, all talked about all last season, and we're super excited about is Dom Hamill. Um, obviously had a great year last year, started the season in spring training in an inter-squad game, got to go to the World Baseball Classic with Puerto Rico, um, and had one of the best strikeout to walkway ratios in the Eastern League. But uh, what are your overall impressions of uh, Dom Hamill? Yeah, Dom Hamill, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what kind of comes of him because he's always been a real spin king. And I remember talking to this, talking with him about this last year. Um, you know, he's somebody who can push 3,000 RPMs on that slider. Uh, which automatically makes you kind of perk up and be like, okay, so that's a really good pitch. Uh, the fastball is going to be about above average. The control is kind of right on that line. It's going to be interesting this year for him. You mentioned spending all of last year at Double A Binghamton, and he was pretty solid there. I wish he would have gotten a chance at Triple A Syracuse to see how the control would have played there. I think this is the year where we kind of decide whether he's going to be a starter or a reliever. Um, but he, he feels like he's definitely going to be a major leaguer one way or the other. I'm really excited to see how that breaking ball can play against AAA batters this year and potentially major leaguers by the time the, the year is out. Yeah, Dom was really dominant down the, down the stretch last year for the Rumble Ponies. And you mentioned the control. He had one of the best strikeout rate, minus walk rates in the Eastern League. So good chance he'll have a new challenge ahead of him this year in AAA. We'll see if Dom can uh, find his way to the majors as early as 2024. Another guy who pitched with Dom, for the Rumble Ponies last year, a name that many Mets fans have come to know over the last year, and that's because he had an incredible breakout season that's put him in top 100 company, and that's Christian Scott, the former Florida Gator relief pitcher. What are your thoughts on Christian Scott entering 2024? Yeah, Christian Scott was one of the most fascinating pitchers to follow last year because coming out of Florida, he was only a reliever. That rotation in Gainesville was incredibly loaded especially for the college level and there's only so many spots to be a starter so they pushed him into relief the Mets drafted him hoped he would be a starter kind of happened in fits and starts but last year he led all of my all minor league pitchers who had at least 80 innings in whip k to walk ratio and uh fip and he only had a 3.6 percent walk rate now why did that happen uh for Christian Scott he moved from a two-seam fastball to a four-seam fastball and instantly like basically instantly had special, special command. He knew exactly where it was going. He could stick it. He could fill up the zone. I think the strike rate on his fastball at double a was north of 70%. 
I mean, when you are throwing at that pinpoint, it's a, you know, it's a pretty good pitch. It's 93 to 97 miles an hour as it is in terms of below, but that makes it play up so much more. If you are always living on the black and limiting walks the way he did, he's had a good slider dating back to college. I think the changeup took a nice step forward last year. So he's got three average to above average pitches now, plus that bordering on plus plus control. Uh, Christian Scott, I mean, probably should have been in triple A at the end of last year, if maybe if Binghamton wasn't going for an Eastern league title. And I fully expect him to be in Queens, this season at some point, it could be as early as the first half whenever the Mets rotation really needs help. Yeah, Christian Scott was just phenomenal to watch all of last year. And it really was exciting to see uh, his fastball just put in comparison with the best prospects in baseball this year among a lot of writers I follow on Twitter. Um, I think the last starter we wanted to talk to you about was a guy John and I have grown really fond of just on a, even on a player level and on a personal level. That's Mike Vassell. Um one of the, I think the only guy on this list who did get to end their season in AAA, um, you know, started started in AA, had, was doing really well, got to AAA, was a little bit rocky at first, but he seemed to figure it out towards the end of the year. Pitched that one hitter where, like, we were following along all night. We were really hoping he was going to be able to close it out. Unfortunately, he didn't. But uh, what are your overall impressions of uh, Vassal? Yeah, when I was doing the midseason list last year, uh, you know, one of the big pieces of feedback I got is Vassal is the Mets top pitching prospect. Now, now it's going to change when we update things now, just because I think Christian Scott has passed him and Vassal was inconsistent at triple a, but I think one thing that's important to remember about triple a, it was dealing with the automated ball strike system. And yeah. a lot of guys kind of suffered because of that. It's a, it's a zone that you're figuring out. There are different rules, half the week versus the other half. Sometimes it's all ABS. Sometimes it's challenge system. So the differences in AAA and AA are noticeable. So looking at Mike Vassell and thinking he fell off a cliff, that's just not what happened. The fastball is pretty good. It's about above average. Uh, curveball and slider could be above average pitches as well. He tends to fill up the zone. You know, he's definitely part of the Mets rotation discussion now. I know I said Christian Scott could make his debut in the first half. Vassell's probably ahead of him in that depth chart for now just because of his AAA experience. Mike Vassell is definitely in that conversation to be a potential number four, number five starter uh, by the end of the year this year. What you mentioned about the different rules, that's such important context. You talk to people that follow AAA baseball, that are involved in AAA baseball, and everyone mentions that the number one, having different rules on different days of the week is such a massive or has such a massive effect on guys and their and their how they attack, you know, with, with ABS or no ABS. You, you're not fooling an umpire with a pitch on the black. You, you need to throw a strike. So it's definitely something fans need to consider. Um, but Mike Vassell had a very good finish to the season in Syracuse. So that was, of course, very encouraging after, like Vito mentioned, his uh, semi-rocky start. But there are certainly reasons for that. Now, there are a couple relievers that are going to be the, joining the Mets in spring training. One of them is a lefty, Nate Lavender, who went to the University of Illinois. And he was really one of the best relief pitchers in the Mets system last year. Talk about Nate Lavender, if you can. Yeah, Nate Lavender is really interesting to me. And I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and it, it's basically accepted in Mets camp at this point that like he's going to be a major league reliever this year. Um, he very well could have been at the tail end of last year, given how he finished things. The interesting thing with me for me with Lavender is I remember I wrote him up the first half of the season as a Mets replacement. And his changeup was really, really good. I mean, it was like a special changeup. And he was able to really limit damage 
against right-handers because of it. And then as the season wore on, he was throwing more fastballs and sliders. And I think I have to double check on this, but my personal theory is that he was a guy who was like, I know my changeup's good. I need to prove that my fastball and slider can be major league quality so I can push through to the majors. And then when I get there, I'll spam my changeup. Like I, I don't need to prove that right now. I need to prove I can do the other stuff. Um, so the fastball and slider played pretty well. Like he was effective with those two pitches late on. I would like to see him go back more to the changeup, just play into that strength if it's a plus-plus pitch like I think it is. Um, but yeah, Nate Lavender has definitely become an interesting name. Yeah, two five seventy already at the AAA level, and of course you love to see lefties that can get outs even when they don't have the platoon advantage. Now on the other side, of course, Lavender, a lefty, you've got Eric Orzi, a right-hander from the University of New Orleans, spent all year with AAA Syracuse last year. Biggest thing that fans should know about Eric Orzi, in case they don't know, Eric Orzi has defeated cancer not once, but twice, and he's a darn good pitcher as well. He's got an interesting pitch mix himself. Uh, fastball that averaged 94 last year. He's got a splitter, too, and a slider. It's that splitter that I think he just throws a lot of. Um, you know, looking at some of the usage on it, it was he was throwing it 62% of the time uh, in September. He was around 40 to 50% earlier than that. So he just, again, kind of like with Nate Lavender, he has that off-speed pitch. He leans into it in a way that Lavender doesn't. But if he can get back to that splitter and just leaning into that, and we're seeing a splitter revolution now in the game as other guys are leaning into that as well. So if he already has that pitch, he can still grow from here. One person that uh, has not fallen off at all that we talked about nightly on our show was one of the most, I think, exciting prospects to watch in baseball. That is Jet Williams. Uh, Jet Williams last year, the way we put it, I mean, obviously, like the numbers are his OBP was close to 500, but John and I were just trying to give it into the simplest fans, the way to fans of this guy is getting on base half of the time. Like it's crazy to watch somebody play the way Jet Williams plays. Um, just what is, I, I would like to, I want to know, like, first of all, like your, your report on Jet, like we're talking about, but also have you had fun? Like we have had fun, like just watching Jet Williams play baseball. Well, I got to say, I, one of my favorite things about Jet Williams is that his name is Jet, and then he stole 45 stolen bases. Like, that's just so perfect. Talk about nominative determinism, uh, the fact that his name Jet and is a fast ball player. Uh, yeah, he's he's a lot of fun to watch. It was really interesting to see how they pushed him starting out the year at single A, moving to high A, and then fitting in with that double A team. Uh, and the fact that he was rubbing elbows with Drew Gilbert, Luis Angel Acuna, and all these pitchers that we've talked about. I think it's really special, the fact that he was doing that one year after playing high school ball. Uh, he's just a guy who does not expand the zone whatsoever. That's why you're seeing that on base percentage uh, that's in that 420 range uh, so far. That's really special. He walked 100 plus times, which is just not something you see out of a teenager. A lot of these guys get a little too jumpy. Uh, they're trying to prove themselves. He was like, listen, single A, high A, these guys don't have the control yet. Why am I going to make their jobs easier? Um, so the average, if you're just looking at like his 263 average, you might think that's not great. He is a potential plus hitter with that speed is really interesting. Uh, he's got more power in his frame than you might expect for a guy who's five foot six. Uh, what I think is going to be the interesting thing for Jet Williams is like, where does he play? Because Luis Angel Acuna, like we said, is probably moving from second or from short to second because of Francisco Lindor. Jet Williams has played both short and center and might be mixing in some second at some point as well the speed is what you're excited about like he can cover lots of ground and I, I would really like to see him play more center field to utilize that speed 
Um, but so far, the offensive profile has just been so exciting that the fact that we are having to have this conversation about Jet Williams when he just turned 20 in November is an exciting one. And it's funny that you bring up the 45 stolen bases because when we spoke to Jet at spring training, uh, Jet would be, if you spoke to Jet, he, you, he would probably be disappointed with the 45 because Jet told us his goal for the year was 70 stolen bases, which we were visibly shocked at that that uh that goal that this young dude was telling us in the backfields of port st Lucie, and then you know started off a little slow but as the season went on john and i were just wondering like at a certain point we were thinking if he, if things really go right he might be able to get close to that 70. so the 45 was still impressive but it is funny that it, it is still it's still not even the level that jet wishes it was at yeah i mean we're we're living in the time now of the stolen base right like th there were multiple guys in the minor leagues last year who stole 90 bags. Now, Jet Williams is not as fast as Victor Scott II, but guys are more willing than ever to, to try to turn a single into a double by, by stealing second. And I think the more confident he gets in that speed, the more of a green light he has uh, to push the envelope. So uh, I'm not going to predict 70 stolen bases for anybody outside of like those true 80-grade runners, but hey, it's, it's I wouldn't be shocked if he gets there. Yeah, nothing Jet does shocks us. Jet actually, for those who don't know, did play in a major league spring training game last year, laced a double that was against the Cardinals in Jupiter. So Jed has had a taste, but it'll be great for Mets fans to get to see him even more. Another one of the guys, like you mentioned, Sam, the Mets are so rich with talent up the middle. You talk about Luis Angel Acuna, Jet Williams, Drew Gilbert in center field. And there was another player drafted in that same first round as Jet Williams in 2022, and that's catcher Kevin Parada. Parada will also be joining major league camp he was there last year as well kevin displayed a lot of power in his first full year of pro ball he hit 14 homers over 105 games so sam what's your outlook for kevin parada this season yeah i think if you're kevin parada i mean he dealt with some injury issues last year that that may have limited him at times between uh brooklyn and, and binghamton the power certainly played like he was still an above average high a hitter uh, didn't necessarily take off the way people hoped, but listen, the first full season is a long season. He is just still two years re removed from being one of the best performers in all of college baseball. So you, if you're the Mets, you know, that's still in the tank. It's how do we get there? But the power is there. So at least th there's something to build off. He has that little bit of experience in double a, um, how is he going to adjust with that and still work on his defensive work behind the plate because catchers have a demanding job. That's the next thing, too, is like being able to catch 100 plus games a year. Um, so there are challenges ahead for Kevin Prada. But again, he does have that base of success. So he knows what it looks like and what it can take uh, to get back. There. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping 
helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. And with Kevin behind the plate, that'll be fellow backstop Hayden Sanger. Now, for Mets fans that don't know, Sanger took home some hardware last year. He was the Mets minor league platinum glove winner. So an outstanding defender. And Sam, they, they do say that catching and throwing with your left hand, two quickest ways to the big leagues. Yeah, I mean, Hayden Sanger, defense has always been his calling card. I mean, he's, he's dropped off the top 30 a few years ago, but it just seems like guys love working with him behind the plate. Um, he works with pitchers really well. He frames really well. He throws really well. So, you know, when you're looking at in, invites to Major League Spring Training, there are a lot of pitchers who need catchers, who need somebody to work back there. Hayden Sanger is going to make that so easy on anybody from any level, whether it's like a Nate Lavender or a Dominic Hamill or guys who haven't seen the majors yet or some of these more experienced major league veterans. They're going to love throwing to a guy like that who knows what he's doing back there. And Hayden Sanger's certainly one of them. Now, before we get out of here, um, I noticed you're wearing a Baron shirt. We talked about this before the podcast. You're not wearing it for John Barron. You're wearing it because you've just amassed such a collection of minor league, uh, minor league memorabilia. John and I love talking to guys like, what is your favorite minor league ballpark you've been to? And uh, at, at, do you have any favorite like in-game moments from any of these games you've been to? Oh, man, that's that's a good and, one. And to be clear, uh, yeah, we're not I, talking about like we're not talking about play on the field. We're talking straight like minor league baseball antics. Oh, I mean, that's yeah, I could go for an hour. In fact, I do. Right. Like, that's why I have my other podcast is talk about minor league antics every week. Um, but yeah, this is actually a Barron's shirt, but it's the one that Michael Jordan wore. So it's got his number on it. That's why I... Michael Jordan put us Barons on the map there, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite minor league stadium. That's that's a tough one. And I get asked it a lot. Uh, honestly, one of my answers for this is always whatever minor league stadium is closest to you. So for me, that's Brooklyn. And I also think Brooklyn is one of the most unique in minor league baseball, being right yeah. there on Coney Island, right there on the beach with all the amusement rides going on beyond the fence. I mean, if Surprise fireworks. Hitters, not as always did in. Yeah, there's fireworks. Uh, I, you know, it's it's such a unique atmosphere, and they do such a good job down there between leaning into Nathan's hot dogs or doing Seinfeld night, uh, which is one of the – I still haven't been. That is a goal for my of mine for 2024 is to go to Seinfeld night. Um, so Brooklyn's certainly up there, uh, you know, close to my heart, Worcester's Polar Park. Uh, the AAA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox. Worcester is nearby where I grew up. Uh, it's where my nephew and all my nieces were born. It's where my sister was born. Uh, so having a team that's like in essentially my hometown backyard is really neat. And they've done a good job with that. They have the blue monster in right field instead of the green monster in left. So like any little touches you can put on that. I know there are various green monsters across the minor leagues, but that one's pretty cool to me. Um some other ones that I want to shout out real quick. Uh, Hodgetown and Amarillo. If you want to see some offense, get yourself to Amarillo, Texas. The wind really blows out there. Guys have hit 500-foot homers. Wow. These are guys who are like legit sluggers. They're not just lifting it and watching it sail. Uh, but you can get some 14 to 13 uh, run games there. And that, it, it's pretty good. And it's a nice walkable concourse. They did a really good job of like leaning into the Texas aesthetic. So I recommend Amarillo as well. Sam, you mentioned left-handed hitters hitting the ball in Brooklyn. There was one guy that we did not bring up, and that's Ryan Clifford, who he has hit some balls in his short time at Brooklyn that left-handed hitters usually do not hit. I'm talking about the sandbox out in right center field. 
So where are you on Ryan Clifford? He's very young, but he displayed some of the best power, especially amongst guys his age in 2023. Not to get off topic from the fun minor organics. No, 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 no. That's totally fine. I, I love talking about Ryan Clifford. Yeah, 24 homers last year. That was tied for second most among minor league teenagers. So we know the power can play. It was interesting for him going from Asheville in the Astro system, which is an absolute launching pad mm-hmm. akin to Amarillo, uh, to Brooklyn, which is a pitcher's paradise. Uh, and having to see him adjust to that, it'd be interesting to see what happens if he goes back to Brooklyn to start out this year. But yeah, it's legit left-handed power. Um, I know there were some people out there who actually preferred him to Drew Gilbert uh, in the Justin Verlander trade because of that power. Clifford has an obvious power advantage over Gilbert, and he is younger, so there's like a longer developmental path there. Uh, I think the thing to watch with him is like, where does he end up defensively? He's not a great runner. Um, He can maybe play a corner. He's got a decent arm. Both the Astros and the Mets have played him at first base. If he ends up there, he still has the power to make it work. And if he's already starting out, you know, like I said, with 24 homers, it's at least 30 homer upside, and that's got to be exciting. Yeah, Clifford, of course, a very exciting prospect. You check out any prospect list, and uh, Ryan Clifford, very highly regarded. Now, back to the minor league antics, Sam. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch you here with a – I'm going to throw you a changeup when you're looking for a fastball. What is your Mount Rushmore? Vito and I are, are huge Mount Rushmore guys. What is your Mount Rushmore of minor league nicknames? And the caveat is it's got to be like a full-time name. It can't be the Jersey Diners or the Pierogies or the uh, – you know, the shortcakes or anything like that. We're talking full-time minor league. Oh, games. boy. You're trying to get me in trouble now, right? Like, that's what no. this is. Well, I be, guess you I'm might. Get gonna, teams, like, you only got four. You only got four spots. So I don't want anyone to be mad at I Sam. I only got four right? spots. Don't be mad at Sam here. No, I, I don't think there are fans that are going to be mad at me. I think there are going to be teams that are going to be mad at me, which is a whole different atmosphere. Um, I will go. The first one that came to mind was the Fort Wayne Tin Caps. Um, I love the Tin Caps general look. I love the name because it's it's a thinker. You have to think about it for a second. It's a Johnny Appleseed. Uh, like it's in honor of Johnny Appleseed. They have an apple with an actual tin cap on. Uh, so that one always comes to mind for me because I don't think a lot of people talk about them in this conversation. I have to go with this one next because it's one of the most popular. And every time I bring it up, even to my like non-baseball loving friend, friends, they're like, that team exists. It's the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Uh, the fact that it's four words, Rocket City, it's not just Huntsville Trash Pandas, Rocket City, and then Trash Pandas. And then everybody asks, what's a Trash Panda? It's a raccoon. <laughs> so put that one next. Um, I love the Montgomery Biscuits. That's a nice favorite of mine. Heck yeah. Yeah. They're just one of the overall best looks in minor league baseball and really speaks to what minor league baseball should be to me. Uh, it's just super fun. You look at the logo. It is a biscuit. It's got a pad of butter for its tongue. Like, let's not overthink this. He's not swinging a bat. He's not trying to do anything special. He's literally just a biscuit. Um, they did a faux back look a few years ago in honor of Forrest Gump. That is like a retro biscuit that I so want to be their main logo now. Uh, it looks like straight off a diner menu. It's a biscuit. It has a bat over its shoulder, but it's got a little hat on. It's. It reminds me of like big boy diners. Very, very much so. Um, so that's my next one. Ugh, the fourth. More. I'm looking at more. a list now. I'm trying to think. Right, One Sam, more. I know. I'll let you think. The... We'll let you think. We'll give you a couple seconds. We also love the Trash Pandas. And I'm digging the fact that you're going Fort Wayne Tin Caps, Indiana University guy here. So when, anytime we can mix the, the great state of Indiana yeah. in the program, we love to do that. Vito rolls his eyes and says, John, stop talking about Indiana. 
Every interview, anytime, anytime he can bring up Indiana. Sam, we're getting ready for some spring training content, and this guy called me up and was telling me how badly he wants to do Indiana-based content with players. Well, there's one player in particular who played his college ball in Indiana, Indiana institution. He played in Terre Haute. I know, yeah. Now, I know that this All is right. not a minor league baseball team, but one indie team that I want to give a shout-out to is my personal favorite in general, and it's, uh, it's the Rocky Mountain Vibes with their yeah. mascot toasty is my favorite by far i i sam i spent months because the hat you couldn't get anywhere i spent months going on ebay every single day looking up the vibes looking up the vibe just trying to get a hat and i finally got one and it's, it's one of my go-tos yeah i mean they did a tremendous job that's the former colorado Springs sky Sox, who now compete in the pioneer league which is independent uh but they really knocked that whole idea out of the park for that area of the the country uh, there's a lot of excitement there and then around the, the globe. Uh, every once in a while, I feel like I see a Vibes hat, which is pretty neat to see in the wild. All right, my fourth one, I guess I'm going to stay local with this one. I'm going to go with the Hartford Yard Goats. Okay. Just okay. again, like it's it's a name you bring up to anybody, no matter whether they know ball at all or not. And they're like, what, is, what does that mean? Why? It just, it's kooky. It gets your attention. And that's the whole point of a team name is that it should get your attention. There are some other cool ones out there, like Brooklyn Cyclones is so perfect for Coney Island. I actually really like the Rome Emperors that came out this year. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's a former Bra- or it is a Braves affiliate, but they used to be the Rome Braves, now the the Rome Emperors. I'm gonna allow that to like grow on me a little while longer, but that's got some high upside. And again, going back to Amarillo, Amarillo sod poodles. Uh, it's just such a fun name to say. And another one you got to look up, like, what is this hot poodle? It's the most fun part of minor league baseball. And the specialty names are obviously great. Like I forgot which team it is. I think it's Fresno maybe, but the, um, the angry Nona's or the fighting Nona's and their logo is a, is an old, is a grandma with a wooden spoon screaming on specialty nights. The Jersey diners just came out. I mean, it's, it's minor league baseball is so much fun. And um, we've, uh, John, I'm going to bring up the the Akron game because it's my favorite thing. But John and I were watching a Blade Tidwell start one day. Or was it Christian Scott? It it was Christian Scott. We were watching a Christian Scott start one night, getting ready to do the podcast. And um, obviously on the MLB app, you get to watch all of the in-game features of the minor league baseball games. And we were fortunate enough to watch the game Mail Carrier or Dead. Uh, And do you have any idea what this game would be, Sam? Mail mail carrier or dead? That was the game. Mail carrier or dead. Is it just like the names of mail carriers and you have to figure out if they're like a dead person or somebody who's actually in the community carrying mail? They would show you a picture of somebody and they would go, is this person a mail carrier or is this a dead person? So they showed showed Cliff from Cheers. That's a mail carrier. And then when, when we thought it took a really dark turn, was they threw Betty White up there, and it felt like she didn't die recent enough. <laughs> like it, she didn't die. Long I also ago. don't know her to carry mail. Yeah, so she was dead. She was she would go into the dead category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was uh, it was startling. Although Akron Rubber Ducks, that's one of my favorite team names. But then they went ahead and they did that. So um, yeah, I'm curious to see if they run it back in 2024 or not. Let's just put it this way: the minor league season is very long. And these teams have to come up with a lot of things on a random Tuesday, Wednesday night in July to get people's attention. If we're talking about it here in February, they kind of did their job. That's so a, yeah. a little morose, but like it worked. Shout they out Akron Rubber Ducks. So talking oh, about we it in February. We've never forgot it. 
<laughs> well, Sam, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Like I said before, Sam Dykstra is a writer for MLB Pipeline. He hosts minor, the MLB, the he hosts Major League Baseball's official minor league podcast, the show before the show. You could follow him on Twitter at Sam Dykstra Minor League Baseball. And uh, you'll see those Met rankings coming out in the next month, and then you'll know who to tweet at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I welcome all engagement with the list. So any debates anybody wants to have, we can have them in a month. Thanks so much for having me, guys.